Hey, it's Andrew, and today on the show, we have Chris Savage, the CEO and co-founder of Wistia. In today's episode, we talked about how having a creative brand can help retain loyal customers, how churn and retention have changed in Wistia over the years, and why qualitative data is irreplaceable. Chris also shared the story of why he and his co-founder decided to take on $17 million in debt, things he wished he realized early in regards to churn, and the ownership of churn metrics within Wistia. We also talked about expansion revenue and its importance, how Wistia uses their own product to improve customer retention, and Chris's piece of advice on churn and retention for those who are just starting out. As usual, I'm excited to hear what you think of this episode, and if you have any feedback, I would love to hear from you. You can email me directly on andrew at churn.fm. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Enjoy the episode. Today's episode is sponsored by Avrio, a collaborative insights platform built directly into your workflow. With the browser extension and web app, Avrio provides a new way to capture and share data analysis, user research, and learnings directly in context with your team. From data dashboards, Google Slides, and Slack threads, to inside of apps and team members' heads, Avrio captures all of your insights and creates a single source of truth. Visit avrio.com to learn how you can maximize your team's collective knowledge with Avrio. This is Churn.fm, the podcast for subscription economy pros. Each week, we hear how the world's fastest growing companies are tackling churn and using retention to fuel their growth. How do you build a habit-forming product? We crossed over that magic threshold to negative churn. You need to invest in customer success. It always comes down to, to retention and engagement. Completely bootstrap, profitable, and growing. Strategies, tactics, and ideas brought together to help your business thrive in the subscription economy. I'm your host, Andrew Michael, and here's today's episode. Hey, Chris, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. It's exciting to, to have you. Uh, for the listeners, Chris is the co-founder and CEO of Wistia. And if you don't know, Wistia make marketing software, video series, and educational content that helps over 500,000 companies grow their business and brand with video. Uh, prior to co-founding Wistia, Chris graduated from Brown University with a BA in arts, semiotics, and was a winner of the Western Fine Arts Award for Excellence in Filmmaking. So my first question for you, Chris, is how did you do it? I mean, from watching your content <laughs> and seeing your brand that you built around Wistia, the company just oozes fun and love. Like, what's the secret? I think the secret is that you can't fake that. Um, and we were, we were fortunate and unfortunate. The early days were fortunate and unfortunate for us. Like, incredibly fortunate because we found something that worked. Um, we were right about some trends that were happening in the market. But unfortunate at the time because things took way longer than we thought they would. You know, I thought we were going to start this business and in six months, we would we honestly thought we were going to sell it, and then we'd be rich, um, yeah. or we'd fail in obscurity and tell no one that we ever tried. <laughs> um, and it was like you know, four years into building the company, there was four people on the team. We'd raise one angel round, um, and we just hit like two hundred paying customers, which was great. But I thought four years in it would be a lot. It would we would be much okay. farther. Yeah. Um, but even at that point, we were just like loving the challenge and the creative uh, process. And we realized that like loving what you do allows you to work in it for a long time. And so it kind of started then and then evolved and got bigger over time. 
Yeah, I think it's amazing the work that you're doing. Like I personally have a few, I'd say like a handful of companies. I think definitely you and MailChimp are two of the most creative companies out there. And it's like the content that you create. And it's one topic that I've always been interested in. is like the power of brand and how much influence that actually has when it comes to churn and retention. And um, obviously with the nature of the topic, but how have you made the conscious decision? I mean, with the brand that you're building and a lot of the work that you do as well is, is very creative and I'd say maybe even risky to some extent for like early stage startups. Like what is the decision and the thought process that goes into some of these creative efforts that you put together at Wistia? So now the creative, the decision is like, we know brand matters. We've, we've had a number of, uh, a number of different projects and events and, marketing activities and things in the early days, which were basically impossible to track um, quantitatively, but got a hugely good qualitative response. And it helped us see the power of brand. And so we know that it works. We know that that's what our customers want. We, and we've made mistakes when we didn't include, um, we didn't communicate in a Wistia way, in a fun, creative way. And our customers called us out and told us it wasn't good. Yeah, Like there was an example um, a couple of years ago, we had to do a pricing change and, um, almost three years ago. And, you know, we'd made a mistake in our, um, model. We had uh, made one metric unlimited and it was, it sounded good at first and it became a huge problem. Yeah. Um, and anyway, the long story short, we sent an email, we were testing, um, this like pricing migration saying like your price is going up X, Y, Z present, like this is why blah, blah, blah. And we were testing the pricing change. We thought we had a good number. And we sent it out. We were, in the message we sent, we, we sent a video because we wanted to make the messaging human. Yep. And um, my co-founder and I were on there, but we were kind of apologizing. And not very, um, we definitely was not fun. And it was definitely not exciting. And it did not feel creative. It felt like, well, we, we made a mistake. So that's why we're fixing this. Yep. And it was crazy because the only responses we got that we tested that with like 800 paying customers. The only responses we got were people being like, this pricing change makes sense, but this communication is not on brand for Wistia. It's not fun. It's not creative. And I signed up for Wistia because of your fun and creative brand. Yeah. That's Which amazing. is kind of crazy. So, yeah. They told us that. So then when we actually uh, did the change for all customers and told everybody about the pricing change and why it was happening, we were willing to have more fun with it. And we made fun of like the house that we started the business in and like how basically we said, you know, this company has grown up and when you grow up, a lot of things change and things that work before don't work anymore. And like, this is why we do this. And now we get to invest in all these fun and interesting things. And the video itself is fun and interesting. Um, and we told, and we just kind of took that approach and we got basically no negative response at all. Um, it was all positive, which is you know pretty rare when you're doing a price increase. It's um, extremely rare, yeah. and it was it all came down to brand, for sure. And I think that's definitely like a, a very big, uh, powerful indicator of the power of brand because a pricing change it can typically be something very sensitive, and typically companies as well maybe approach them a little too formal. Uh, so it's good that you, your customers called you out on it, but it's even better that you turned back and came out with the personality as well at the end of it. I love that. 
so you mentioned as well a little bit now that uh, like this was the early days, your company started in a small little house and you're growing and uh, things changed as well. And we touched on it a little bit before we uh, started this episode is that uh, for you looking at Wistia, like Turner retention has been an evolving journey as well. Like uh, you mentioned the first 200 customers, uh, you didn't have one customer turning up until that point. So I'm interested to hear like how things have changed and evolved for you as the company's been growing and maturing. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. The first 200 customers, we had zero churn. I thought we had it all figured out and we had the perfect business. Um, that turned out to be untrue. Um, and yeah, as you as the company grew and we got, basically started to talk to more uh, potential customers who were, you know, didn't have the largest problem. Like they weren't just like the tiny niche that knew exactly what Wistia was, but they had to understand the problem and they had more things going on and the market evolved we of course started to have churn and um, paying really close attention to the unit economics of the business turned out to be incredibly important to how we've been able to scale. Um, And if you look at it today, we have an incredibly dialed in in terms of um, how much we expect a customer to spend in month one, in month six, in month 12, in month 24, in month 36. Like it is, it is all, um, you know, that's one of the magical things about SaaS, right? Like if you can get the right data and you get the right people looking at it, you can really understand how your customers interact with your product. You can build something uh, really great. Yeah, it's amazing. I think definitely it's one of the things that I love about SaaS is how predictable they can be once you understand and you have the right data. But you mentioned as well, like 200 uh, customers and uh, you thought you had the perfect business. Uh, in the early days when you were looking at measuring and tracking, like were there any mistakes that you think you made uh, that led you to, to believe that you had the perfect business? Do you think there was any things you could have done earlier on to better understand the problem or challenge ahead? Yes, I think the thing that we, in the early days, we were just looking at the absolute numbers. Um, are any customers chan- uh, canceling? No. All right, we're in good shape. Yeah. And then when you have a business where people are canceling and people are upgrading and people are expanding and there's referrals, there's all the stuff like digging into the why is the, is the critical piece. Um, and looking at like the usage and how much are people actually using this? And, you know, it's funny because in our world, people can use Wistia and that means that they upload videos, embed them on their site, create channels of content. And some people continue to upload lots of videos and some people don't. And there's not a super strong correlation between people who are not uploading videos and people who are canceling because like the videos continue to deliver value when they're on your site. And we didn't go in expecting that, you know, like that was not, um, that was not part of the plan, but that turned out to be the reality. And it also is why I think churn was so low at first. Um, and I, I, over and over and over and over, I learned the lesson, like you've got to measure all the quantitative stuff and that's how you're going to understand at a high level what's happening. But if you want to understand really quickly where there are issues, you want to understand really quickly, um, you know, what can be, what can be done to improve something? You have to go talk to people. You have, yeah. to, you have to figure out a way to sample the data and actually have conversations with your customers, your prospective customers or churned customers or whatever. And like almost always a small number of qualitative conversations is going to give you um, the insight to, to make decisions really quick. Yeah. So what you're saying is you're really using the quantitative data to inform who you're speaking to and uh, who you're learning from as well at the same time. What sort of questions are you asking these customers then, uh, obviously depending on the scenario, but what are you really trying to figure out when you're speaking to them? 
we're just really trying to understand like, it, and it's obviously a constant evolution um, as the world is changing, the market is evolving. Like how does what we do fit into your work? How does it fit into what success looks like for your marketing team? Like how does it fit into how people communicate in your company? And it's really like, I, in the ideal scenario, you are sitting down with someone over their shoulder, watching them work and seeing like all the interactions that they have and all the things that they would never put in a survey and never, you, you would never be able to figure out the quantitative data. Um, but it's actually so easy to figure out if you can actually sit with someone. Yeah. And I think even more so at the early stage, uh, like you say, like at that stage, you don't even have enough data to inform on trends or to give you an idea of what's happening. But having that really close um, touch with your customers and having that uh, ground person speaking to them is, is way more powerful than actually looking at data to begin with. Well, it's also, yeah, I mean, you know, I've made this mistake where um, we had a period of time where we were scaling a ton and we basically only looked at the quantitative data. And in the early days, to your point, like you're just talking to everybody and you're hearing all the stuff, you know, when there's two people yeah. or four people, like, you know, what every customer wants, you know what their problems are. Like you just inherently know. And what I missed is that like, as a company scaled, we had to create new systems that would allow us to hear what customers wanted. And yeah. so, you know, building out a research team and doing um, over the shoulder user testing and like all of these different things they're designed to help us understand what customers really want and what they need and how we can help them be successful. Um, and that stuff that was easy in the early days, just because it happened as a part of your job became much harder as the company scaled without having a process. Like process. we had to create a process and a system and then it made a world of difference. Yeah. I mean, actually, this is what I want the question I wanted to ask you because I was interested is like, uh, you got to the point you were, you thought you were doing really, really well when it came to churn and retention. Like at what point was it like, Oh, like we have a problem now, maybe we should give this attention. And then what were some of the things that you tried to do as a team to uh, give focus to retention? Yeah, we, we basically tried to look at the ownership of, um, acquisition and growth. So, you know, it was some point where we're just doing the math and it's like, how much does it cost to acquire a customer versus how much does it cost to retain a customer? It's like, well, it's much cheaper to retain a customer and much easier to retain a customer. Um, and we had to just like start to evolve our focus from saying like only focus on acquisition to really focusing much more on um, retention and expansion. And like anything, you have to give smart people the ownership and let them roll and figure it out. And so um, our team started talking to people about what success looked like and what their challenges were. And, you know, there was like easy, quick things that came up, like, um, making it clear that if someone, uh, moves out of a role, like if our customer, if, a, if the person who's our customer in a company, um, moves into a different role or leaves the business, like how do you make it easier for the company who is a customer to continue to get value and have somebody else on board? Things like that end up making, made a really big impact, but it was just like seeing that problem and having people focused on it, which allowed us to actually execute on it. Yeah. I mean, this is definitely a big recurring theme that's come up is typically two areas. Onboarding needs to be improved or when the customer champion leaves uh, is trying to figure out a way 
uh, to better uh, protect the company against that. You sort of realized this as well, and then you started sort of giving ownership, you said, to specific teams. Was there any specific team that sort of was responsible for this, or uh, was it really like a company-wide effort and uh, trying to understand like how each team within the company would influence it? Yeah, we gave ownership to our growth team. Okay. Uh, and they were coordinating with many other people, but they were kind of like responsible for looking at the data. Uh, so and what was your like reasons, motivations behind that? Obviously everyone has different teams that they give it to. And um, you know, it, at the time when we were starting to do that, the, the reason we did it was we had built a cross-functional team. So they had everything that they needed to get the job done. Um, and that meant that they could, attack things pretty quickly and they could try things like with small tests without having to get a lot of permission or without there having to be a lot of coordination. So it was really like, we have this team, it makes sense for them to own this and we can increase the speed that we um, learn. We can move fast. Yeah. Uh, and you also mentioned as well that sort of the, the metrics and the math behind it, you sort of realized that it was cheaper to re like retain customers than to acquire new ones. How did you go about figuring that out? Like, what was the analysis that did it look like when you sort of realized, okay, this now makes sense for us to really focus on retaining customers? Yeah, I mean, it was just this, it's also, part of it was like, we have done a lot of conversion optimization and we've done a lot of um, working on onboarding. And so when you've done a ton of work there and you've been able to move some of the numbers, but you kind of see where they're at, you start looking, you're like, well, the incremental effort here, like we see how much that costs, and if there's sustainable channels, fantastic, like go do it. But if there aren't, then like the easiest way to grow is to, um, is to improve retention. Yeah. That I think that the interesting thing there is like, you can't look at it as just like, what is your churn number? Like that's not, that's not very good because the reality is like churn changes dramatically from a customer who's in month one or two to a customer who's in month 24, right? Like it's very, 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 very different and you need to do different things to retain those customers at different times. And so that just like digging in on that, it starts to become, you start to realize like how can you can attack the different problems. For sure. Um, and then like talking about uh, problems as well, I think something that was super interesting to me and uh, was one of the reasons why I reached out to you was uh, not so long ago in July, 2018, uh, you decided to take on 17 million debt between you and your co-founder uh, to actually buy out your investors and bring back the company. And I think for a lot of people as well, they could see that as a huge risk and uh, like wondering why would uh, you two do such a thing? Uh, so now that we have you on the show, like I'm really, really interested to hear like what were some of the motivations behind uh, that? And obviously I like, I know it's something like building something for the long run, but did churn and retention sort of goals have anything to do with that as opposed to like really aggressive growth or um, what was the main motivation? Yeah, it's a great question. I think, um, so the main motivation was like the fundamental motivation I'll say was we realized that if we sold the business, we would try to rebuild Wistia. And we thought, why would we want to rebuild the company? My co-founder and I, and as we had conversations, we we're like, well, we realized we don't think we're doing our best work and we're kind of unhappy with how we're running the business. And so instead of selling the business to try to, to go build a new one, like, why don't we try to like fix the one that we have? Yeah. And that is what caused us to look at like taking on the debt. Now, debt does look very, very scary. And I think this is where it gets interesting from like um, a unit economic perspective. So we realized we weren't going to sell. We wanted to 
fund a buyback so we could buy back shares from our investors. We could also give our employees who had stock options a return. And debt is a way of like kind of pulling cash forward, you know, from future years, right? Yeah. And so um, that seemed like a good way for us to do it. Um, and the way that we figured this out was like, all right, how much debt do you need to pull together a deal? And then what does the fundamental unit economics of the business look like and how are those evolving? And if we look at that over time, can we predict accurately what we expect revenue to be um, and what we expect the cost of acquiring that revenue to be? Yeah. And um, we looked at the math of how we expected revenue to expand from the existing customer base and how many customers could come in and all of this stuff. And like, we thought that we had also been spending really aggressively on some things that we didn't think were working that well. So we're like, if we turn off some of these things, we look at the future, we think we'll keep growing, which means we can get to profitability. Once we're at profitability, that's basically what we have to, we have to be profitable to serve the debt. Um, and uh, yeah, it was really just like understanding our subscription business really well. And once we understood that, we felt confident that we could do it. And the interesting thing was that the company that provided us the debt, this company, Excel KKR, that's, you know, is an alternative debt program. So it's like much higher interest rate than you would get from a normal bank. But they came in and evaluated us as if they were going to do like a growth investment. Okay. And they do tons of growth investments and they understand um, software as a service really well. And so they came back and understood our economics and they're like, well, it's clear to us that you're going to be able to pay us back. We're like, yeah. fantastic. And so it was like everybody knew from looking at the unit economics that it didn't feel that risky, risky. to do, yeah. especially because the worst case scenario is that we weren't going to be able to be able to pay back the debt, in which case we probably have to sell the business. Now we just turned down selling the business and we thought we probably could continue to sell the business um, in a bad scenario. So that felt less risky. And it was really the biggest risk was how long will it take before we can get Wistia to be profitable? And can we get profitable enough that we can refinance the debt? And yeah. that would allow us to have a much lower interest rate and, and less onerous covenants. And so that was kind of the bet we were taking is like, can we get the, the business profitable quickly? And do we think we could exceed our plans? Um, yeah. And that is what ended up happening. So we got yeah. the business profitable, exceeded the plans and then refinanced the debt. Yeah, I'd say that's an understatement as well. Like uh, reading the tweet that I first came across of like from going from burning 500K a year to turning around a 6 million profit before tax I think and lowering the debt from 17 to 13 million in a year is uh, quite short of a miracle as well. It's amazing. Um, yeah, and it was it was amazing. And, you know, it's also the power of focus and the power of understanding the business. You know, I think um, it it really did allow us to like make that that bet uh, and it made it feel not very scary. And um, even the debt we have now, you know, we're paying it down aggressively, but it doesn't feel scary because we have such a buffer of profitability. Yeah. And also you have the confidence in knowing your unit economics and how the business is growing. Exactly. So it sounds like you must have a really good data team then um, at Wistia. Like what does that look like at the moment? Like how are you structured in terms of uh, getting this data and ensuring that the team is informed? We do. We have a great business intelligence team. Um, there are two people on that full time and then a bunch of other people in different operations roles around the company that like interface really closely with them. Um, but they have built our internal dashboards and, you know, work across teams to make sure we're getting like a full picture of what's actually happening. Um, and yeah, they, you know, 
when I look at the dashboards in the morning and I look at the, the weekly ones, their monthly ones, they're all built by them and managed by them. And they understand, you know, the forecasts are built by them. Uh, it's all, it's a centralized uh, team and it's, it's been fantastic. Yeah, it definitely helps have that central focus. And I think one of the a lot of challenges startups have is that they maybe don't invest enough early on with their metrics. And then it gets to the point where they realize now they need it. And then it's almost like an impossible task to try and sort of bring in the data from all your different sources and then trying to put together uh, reports and using this data to cross-correlate um, events happening in one system versus the other. So it definitely puts you in a powerful position to have those metrics in place to, to be able to use them to make decisions. Exactly. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of times as well about expansion. Um, and I'm interested to hear sort of how you go about measuring uh, retention at, um, at Wistia. What sort of the key metrics that you're looking at and uh, how much does expansion and net MRR retention play a role in what you measure? Um, so it, it plays a pretty significant role. So, I mean, we look at, it's almost like in the first, uh, the first six to nine months, the most important thing is going to be churn mitigation. So it's like, People have come in and they pick the product, but if they're not onboarded well and they're not getting enough value out of the product, then they're going to quit. And so can we help them get enough value? Can we help them use the product well enough and like integrate it to the other systems that they have? Yeah. Um, and then when people adopt Wistia um, and they're using it well, it's going to, it scales based on usage. So the numbers of videos, the amount of viewing, um, stuff like that. And so if people are really successful and they're driving their business with video, then they're going to use Wistia more yeah, and, um, and then they're going to expand, expand more. So it's a very natural expansion. It's, but it's different than, um, you know, it's almost more similar to like AWS. Like, you know what you're going to pay and you understand the rates. And then as you commit more, the rates are going to go down. And then um, we have some more advanced features that don't make sense for everyone, but make sense for, you know, a smaller selection of customers who want to understand the impact of video more completely on their funnel or they want to run automation off of how people are um, viewing things or they want to build ch video channels in their site because they're investing in shows, which is something that we've been investing in a lot ourselves. And so those are kind of like more advanced features um, that someone can expand to. Yeah. But th those, someone's going to expand when they're ready. So it's more like get them in, help them uh, get value out of the product. If they get value out of the product, they're going to naturally expand. Um, and then if they are doing more advanced things or trying to get way more, uh, get way more out of video by making shows and building their brand by doing that, then we have, uh, tools that cost more that they will likely use to do that. Yeah. It sounds like you're in a really, really strong position with your pricing and packaging, and you've really got a good value metric that's aligned with the unit economics as well, like expand as your customers grow and become successful, you become successful as a business. But you mentioned earlier as well that you had made a mistake with pricing. And I think in the early days, it's something that people don't really give much attention to in the beginning. They just set a price and then say, okay, this is it and let's go. Yeah. Um, if you had to go back in time and like give maybe one piece of advice to somebody starting out, what would be it when it comes to pricing and packaging? I would say that pricing is part of the product. And you have to think of it that way. So my example here is like, MacBook Pro. If you buy a MacBook Pro and it costs whatever it costs right now, twelve hundred bucks, like, oh, that's a good laptop, kind of expensive. I hope you get a lot of value out of it. I hope it's really fast. You know, you expect everything to work really well. You expect to get a good warranty, like all that stuff. Yeah. It's a really good computer. If it costs a hundred dollars, you will 
it's like one of the best computers that has ever been. Like, it's like, wow, if this thing costs a hundred bucks, it is, it, that's absolutely insane. Like people will talk about that like crazy. Everyone will tell each other, you've got to get this thing. It's only a hundred dollars. Like you won't believe it. It can, it can, it runs circles around everything else. And if it costs 10,000, it's an absolute piece of shit. And I think that the thing that people don't realize with pricing is that their pricing is part of their product. It is what people are used to evaluate where you sit in the market. It is, it is actually like a feature of your product. And so sometimes you can make an amazing thing and you overprice it and you're confused as to why no one thinks it's amazing or you underprice it. And it seems like um, people should be going wild for it, but they think it's too cheap because they can't believe that you can make a MacBook for a hundred bucks. So yeah. of course it can't, it's not actually good. So it's, it's just incredibly, incredibly important. And I think if I had really thought about that more in the early days, I would have thought about that in like regards to our positioning more. And I think that that would have helped us avoid um, some of the mistakes that, that we, that we made and ended up having to rectify. So I love that as a viewpoint as well, really like seeing it as part of the product and, uh, just like you'd make changes to your product and experiments as well, like with pricing and packaging, it's something that you need to get right to get the whole product right at the end of the day. Yeah. If you have a great product, but you have a bad uh, business model, like you're screwed. <laughs> yeah. So uh, talking about sort of bad business models and uh, maybe we can jump to the next question that I ask every guest that joins the show. Um, and let's have a hypothetical scenario now. I'm going to throw you into a new company and you've arrived at this company and the churn of retention is not doing well at all. Um, and you've been asked to try and turn things around for them. And they've given you 90 days to try and prove and uh, show some results. What would be some of the first actions that you would do at this company to try and uh, turn things around for them? Yeah, I think... In the first 30 days, I would get as many, um, I would interview the people who are not churning and try to understand, like people who have high usage and are not churning, why are you not churning? I'd interview the people who are not churning and have low usage and try to understand why they're not churning, like what kind of value they're getting out of the product. And then I would try to sit down with people who are actually churning and, and say like, what's wrong? What do we mess up? Like what, what's missing here? Um, because you don't have time to run a lot of tests unless you're at an outrageously huge scale. You're just not going to get statistically significant data. So you have to throw that out the window at first and, and just really talk to customers. Yeah. And I mean, that is going to be where your insights come from. And it's going to, it's going to, they're going to tell you the support's horrible. Oh no, the support's amazing. The product is not good. The product is inconsistent or it's all project based or whatever. And I look from that and try to make a move and say like, if the problem is um, the people are not onboarding, I would throw people at that problem and do some things that don't scale, throw myself at that problem and say, give me a percentage of the people who are signing up for the product and I will onboard them myself and we'll see if, we, if that makes an impact. And I would basically try to come up with a plan where by doing something that doesn't scale but can prove the learning of what we need to do, if you could accomplish that in the first 90 days, then you could make a big push to make a larger change. So if it was in onboarding or you discover that it's actually a project-based thing, maybe you have to revisit how you're pricing the product. Like whatever the thing is, find out as fast as possible what the actual cause is. And then once you understand that, it becomes much easier to figure out like what thing can you do to validate that? And then if it's validated, then you can you could do a bigger push to actually, you know, change the business model 
change the onboarding flow, change the product, change the pricing, add a new feature, whatever the thing is that you need to do. Yeah, I love that sort of mindset as well that you mentioned is really diving in, speaking to customers, trying to understand the problem, and then what can you do to MVP to prove its value so that you can then double down on it? Because 90 days is not much time as well when you think about getting started a company specifically to make a dent on churn and retention uh, because it's such a nuanced problem, but really uh, like pinpointing that biggest pain point and seeing how you can MVP and prove a solution, I think is definitely a great way to turn around and show some value. In the context as well of the show and uh, with Wistia, its product as well, like. What are some creative ways that you use your own product to come and help with retention and engagement? So we've used Wistia a ton to help with churn and engagement. I think one of the ways is when introducing new features that we want to people to adopt to make videos um, that has someone explaining how to use them. And it's very different, I think, to get an email from someone that says, like, here's a new feature, good luck figuring it out or to get something that shows up in the product that's like, I'm going to walk you through exactly how to do this, like as if you were on a call with me, as if I was doing it for you. Um, we found a lot of success in terms of um, driving adoption through that. We've also added I think video. just to hold you there, I think oh, probably yeah. your uh, product feature announcements are probably one of the very few startups that I actually watch and uh, like actually go through, <laughs> uh, just because they're always like a joy to watch. Like uh, there's definitely entertainment value. You know you're getting some value as well from a product perspective. Uh, and they're really, really good. And I think maybe the way you did as well is the next level. Like you said, like a lot of people will just record a video and walk you through the tool. Whereas uh, at Wister, you really have the brand elements involved. You have that entertainment element involved. And then you obviously have the value at the end of it for your product. So maybe you're underselling a little bit what you, you do as well. Yeah, well, yeah, yes, that's true. I, and I think you're right that like, because I think like work can be boring and it doesn't have to be. And, you know, people care a lot about their work, like a lot, like a lot of pride in people's lives comes from the work that they do. And so yeah. if we can give them, if we can show them that we care and a lot um, and want to help, and we also don't want to waste their time, I think that that ends up paying off. And like, I would say to that point, we, we just kind of look at where we're in the funnel in the, really in the whole customer experience, is there a lot of friction? And if there was a human who was there to help um, guide you through, make you feel less stressed, make you feel more confident, uh, make a funny moment, congratulate you, whatever we put, that is where we put content. We put videos, um, that are humanizing like all throughout, like even our subscription page has like, a uh, like an email subscription page or unsubscribe page has someone just tweeted about it yesterday of like, um, they all the subscriptions are uh, analogous to um, different ice cream flavors. You can like build an ice cream cone of subscription subscriptions. And um, there's like, you know, the melted ice cream when you're, when you're canceling. And it's the type of thing that like, we did that because we thought it was fun and cute. And we thought that people would appreciate at that moment. That's a little bit stressful. Like if you're managing subscriptions, you yeah. probably think you're getting too many emails. And so if we can lighten that a little bit, um, it, we think it's going to make an impact. And some people are going to look at that and be like, you're right. Like, this is funny and I don't need all of these, but I still want some. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just, it's just constantly looking for moments like that. Um, and then I would say in the last year, year and a half, we've been going way bigger in the content that we're making. So we released a feature documentary at the end of 2018 called 110 100, um, where we gave amazing yeah. sandwich video, $111,000 to make three ads for us at different budgets, one with a $1,000 budget, $10,000 budget, one with a $100,000 budget, and then we documented the creative process. 
Um, we distributed that all through Wistia and built, did some pretty giant marketing campaigns based on that. Um, and then in uh, last year, we did a show called Brandwagon that I hosted about brand marketing. That was like the same idea. And so it's, I just personally love when you dog food your product because you just, you get to see the benefits of it that other customers are getting, but also like more importantly, you get to find the problems, you get to find the things to fix, you get to, you come up with feature ideas more easily um, when you're your own best customer. And so I, I love, I love, love, love doing that. Yeah. And I think like it speaks to a couple of things to what you've said now. I think definitely one, it shows that you have a huge empathy for your customers, really understanding them at their different pain points and what they're going through, like taking into consideration their psychology at different states and remembering that they're actually humans. Cause I think this is so easy for us to forget. Yeah. And a lot of the times people also find it a little bit risky because like, if you think about, okay, our customers, they are professionals in parenthesis. Uh, but what we forget is they're humans as well. So yes, they can take a joke. There's no need for a serious tone with everything that goes out. Like, but at the same time, it's got to be part of your culture and your DNA and your brand. Otherwise it just felt feels fake. So I think like you've just managed to have this really, really great balance, um, between sort of being professional, but also, uh, being human and, uh, understanding like how your customers uh, pain points are. So the one thing like I wanted to ask then as well, and maybe this can be the last question to wrap up uh, for the show. Um, Wistia has, uh, has grown quite rapidly over the years. You've had your ups and downs. And um, if you had to give like one bit of advice to somebody starting out today, uh, and let's keep it in the context of the show of churn and retention is what would be some of your advice for somebody starting out, how they should go about thinking about the problem and what should they be looking out for as their company grows over the, over the years? I would tell somebody to look at what problem you're solving for your customer, how critical that problem is, and um, how often someone's going to have that problem. And if you are in a spot where your churn is high or you think it could be high or whatever, the, the, the big question is how can you evolve what you are doing to solve a problem that is more critical, more important, more used more often. Um, and that means you're delivering more value for customers and more ongoing value for customers. And then they're going to be happy to continue to pay you. And I think that a lot of companies find a very small niche where they start and they can find success uh, because they're the only company solving a problem or they're the company solving it best. But you have to be really honest with yourself, I think, about like how large of a problem is that and how big will that problem become? Will other tools solve that problem and leave you just being a feature and not being a, a product? And I think um, I would ask myself that question a lot. And it's okay to find a niche and solve a problem that no one else is doing. That's a great way to start a business. But you have to be constantly evolving. And it, I mean, all answers come back to talk to customers. Like, you have to be constantly evolving and you have to, you have to talk to your customers and potential customers to understand what the other challenges they have that you can help them with. Yeah, absolutely. I love that as well. Like it's a good point to end on that. It's definitely the central focus and something I think that everybody just keeps on saying and saying on the show is talk to your customers. Um, so on that, Chris, like, is there anything you want to leave us uh, with? Like, how can uh, the audience keep up to date with what's happening at Wistia? Have you got anything special that you'd like to let us know happening in this year um, before we say goodbye? Yeah, I would say um, you can keep up with Wistia, Wistia.com. You can find me at Twitter, C Savage. Um, we got a lot more big content coming out soon, which is really exciting. So 
keep your eyes peeled for that. And I would say if you're interested in learning more about brand marketing in particular, um, check out Brandwagon, which is our show on brand, which I'm particularly proud of. Um, and that is it. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining, Chris. Wish you best of luck going forward and uh, have a good weekend. Thank you for having me. Cheers. And that's a wrap for the show today with me, Andrew Michael. I really hope you enjoyed it and you're able to pull out something valuable for your business. To keep up to date with Churn.fm and be notified about new episodes, blog posts, and more, subscribe to our mailing list by visiting churn.fm. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback, good or bad, I would love to hear from you. And you can provide your blunt, direct feedback by sending it to andrew at churn.fm. Lastly, but most importantly, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it and leave a review as it really helps get the word out and grow the community. Thanks again for listening. See you again next week.